This is David Page, and you're listening to the Southern Fried Philosophy Podcast. everybody welcome to a brand new episode of the southern fried philosophy podcast where it's our take on life liberty and the pursuit of gravy while you the listener are invited to come up on the front porch grab a beverage and set a spell we've got a great show lined up for you as always but before we begin let me introduce you to our starting lineup tying up their shoes and running up on the field uh number 10 in your program number one in your hearts uh, running the Facebook Live and the YouTube Live, playing shortstop tonight. It is Ryan, a.k.a. Magic Man. Hey, everybody. And then we've got the head of the team. He's the El Capitan. It is our producer, Brian. Hey, hey, hey. And I'm pl- playing catcher, evidently. <laughs> not, mm. not the pitcher today, <laughs> uh, evidently. Uh, I am your co-host, Biggin, and how about you? Producer Brian, where can our friends find us on the socials? We are on all of the socials. All of them? Uh, well, we're on all the important ones. Most of them. Uh, Facebook.com slash Southern Fried Philosophy. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch at SFP Radio. We're on YouTube at YouTube.com slash channel slash U-C-C-V-E-M-8-F-H-Q-2-Y-K-T-U-M-G-U-M-I-5-N-P-G. You can always that's email a, the show. At, so sorry. that's an uppercase N, by the way. Um. Well, yeah, so capital U, capital C, capital C, capital V, capital E. You get the we'll point. move on. Yeah, uh, you can always email us at sfpradio at gmail.com. We'd love for you to support the show, patreon.com slash sfpradio. And we are streaming on iHeartRadio, Spotify, and the TuneIn app. Absolutely. Uh, listen, we if you have a, a few extra dollars, we would appreciate it. Honestly, most of our money goes out the door to help other people anyway. So um, it's more of a uh, treasure box that we put stuff in and then delve it out as needed. So we would appreciate that. So thank you for doing that. Uh, Also, again, uh, I know there's more than 100 of you that listen to the show. So for crying out loud, how many more weeks do I have to sell you to go to YouTube, uh, click the subscribe button, smash it, lick it, cuddle it. You know, whatever you want to do with it, mm. that's between you and and the button, consenting buttons. Uh, please just, you know, smash that and then just subscribe. Turn off the notifications. <laughs> you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. That'd be great. Uh, just to subscribe. We need 100 uh, people to do that, so that would help us out a lot. Uh, if you're staying at home and you want to do your own podcast, shoot producer Brian an email at headlines at SFP Radio. That would be awesome. And if you want to be a show sponsor, email me uh, at sfpradio at gmail.com. And you could get your name listed on the sponsor shout out at the beginning of the show. Uh, We want to say shout out to our listener from Wales. I picked Wales specifically because episode 176, if you guys remember. Are these the same Wales? No, it's a different one. Okay. It's the, the, the country of Wales. It's no H. Yeah, no H. 176 mm. title is called Famous Wales. Maybe he meant Famous Welsh. Oh. Maybe he just misspelled it and was trying to find yeah. Famous Welsh people. 
Yeah, sure. Right, Famous whales. That makes a lot more sense now. Way more sense. By the way, I took that little <laughs> nugget and I showed my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law and my wife, and we had a <laughs> groovy time uh, going over Norman's tweets. If you don't know what we're talking about, go listen to episode 176. That would be great. Yeah, we recorded the whole thing. You should check it out. <laughs> and it's free, uh, at yeah. least for now. I'm yeah. going to start making you pay. Um, if you don't smash that YouTube oh. subscription, oh, we're going to we cut go. these off <laughs> at like five episodes only, and then you got to pay for anything else. Oh, yeah. So smash that YouTube button. Uh, so I'm going to ask you like I ask you guys every week. How you be darn? Magic man. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey. Um, doing good. Hey. Hi. Hey, I'm a, I, I, hi, hi. Hey, I'm about a, f- a few ounces lighter uh, tonight. Oh. Uh, not not due to dieting, but I, I had some uh, some skin removed. And uh, oh, again, smack the YouTube button so you can see this. Oh, yeah. got a band aid okay. here. Got one here, and then I had a couple other spots, little spots removed today, and uh, relatively painless. The worst part was uh, getting numbed up. Uh, you know, getting the needle stuck in there. But they um, that's disgusting. What? Yeah. <laughs> And actually, it's like halfway it getting injected in it. The the pain went away. It was really cool. Oh, so fast! Yeah. I just ate so dinner. fast. Yeah, it was very fast. Yeah, very fast. Um, but yeah, doing good. Um, went down uh, to Georgia, southeast Georgia, last weekend. How was that? Visited the uh, visited my in laws. Had a great time seeing them again. My niece made us some meatloaf oh, one evening for dinner. Yes. It was really good. Yeah, it was really How good. How she make said meatloaf? Um, all I saw was a loaf of meat with some ketchup on top, and that was it. All right. I'll give you that. So it, was, it was either ketchup or barbecue sauce, but whatever it was, it was good. Either way. Was it was it juicy? Yes. Okay. It wasn't like there a dried-out was, was hamburger juices. patty? It was not a dried-out hum- okay. hamburger patty. It was juicy and had flavor, mm. and it was just, yeah, I was really impressed. Uh, she's, what, 15 years old? Oh, wow. And uh, did a great job with it. Well, well done. the recipe. So well can, done. Probably should, yeah. I've given you the or recipe. Maybe she can come up here and visit, and have we'll have her make it, and then invite y'all over. And <laughs> there we go. There we go. There's that. What uh, were you saying? There's that. <laughs> there's that. I feel like we've got a creepy vibe going on tonight. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Producer Brian, how you be doing? <sighs> I, I read some news yesterday that kind of shook shook me a little bit. Oh, so you got shook. I got shook. Okay. I was shook. Tell me about it. Yeah. So growing up in North Carolina, you know, I was mm-hmm. born and raised. There's a couple of things you almost take for granted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Growing up here. The tea is sweet. Absolutely. Uh, the barbecue sauce is tangy. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. And uh, the, the basketball coach for the men's program at Duke is Coach K. Not no mo. Like those, those are never changing things, right? My entire life, nope. my entire entire life, mm-hmm. to be clear. So I just saw the news. You know, Coach K's retiring, and I'm not a big, I'm not like a, I'm not a dookie, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't have a problem. I mean, you know, it's, I'm, not, I'm one of the uh, not Carolina people, if you know what I mean. Okay. As far as North Carolina guys, usually you see the Duke or Carolina. I've always been just a. Not Chapel Hill guy. So, I mean, but since I was born, Coach K has been the coach at Duke. Yeah. And that's changing in a year, right? 
And that, that's just kind of, yeah. I really kind of was like, oh, uh, what's that mean? You know, like, it's just been a constant, you know, you don't have to be a basketball fan to know who he is, right? Sure. I yeah. mean, he's, he's an icon in college basketball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Winningest coach, I believe. Depends on how you look at it. I know, I know you, this is a, this is a no, hot topic I, for you. I understand. Yeah, it is. You know, and <laughs> being in, in North Carolina, I, yeah. you know, I do bleed blue, but it's a different kind of blue. It's for Kentucky. If you're yeah. new to the show, I'm a huge Kentucky basketball fan. And, and I didn't even want to bring this up because I figured you guys don't care about basketball, so I won't. But you're right. I mean, in North Carolina, it's a staple that Coach K is the coach of Duke. Yeah. But now, uh, again, he's retiring. Uh, this is his last season. Uh, we want to say thank you to, I guess, his, his hurting back and I guess the cicadas that said enough's enough and uh, he's going to retire <laughs> and COVID and whatnot. So uh, I, I hate Duke. I, the, the question for a Kentucky fan is who do I hate more, Louisville or Duke? Uh, it was mm. Louisville, but at, at this point, because Duke has stolen way more players than, than mm. that we wanted recently because they won more recently, it's kind of tilting towards hating Duke more. Um so I'm glad to see him go. I hope I hope the the assistant coach that will become the coach fails horribly. Um, we actually Kentucky plays Dang. Duke um, in the Champions Classic. So my ideal mm. situation is we beat them at the beginning in the Champions Classic, and then we beat them at the very end at the uh, at the championship game. So a bookend defeat of Coach K would be amazing, and Coach K and Coach Cal aren't the biggest fans of each other. So that would even make sure. it better. So yeah, well, this is a big shoes to fill, right? Oh, absolutely. You imagine like be at first year, first time coach. Like he's, he was the, I read up on the guy last night, you know, he played yeah. for coach K and then mm-hmm. couldn't get a real job. So he came back and uh, <laughs> became a coach for, for Duke. And now he's going to be the guy. That's, I mean, I can't imagine that pressure. That's all. Yeah. That's, that's a ton yeah. of pressure. Um, you know, and we see that also. Who else? So the Louisville head coach played for um, his assistant coach, and then Louisville has been a dumpster fire lately with with all kinds of uh, shenanigans that are happening over there. Patino paid uh, had strippers come in for the recruits. Uh, there was a lot of violations that were happening there, and then uh, now more recently, the assistant coach uh, was trying to. Um, uh, oh, what's the, he was, uh, you know, when you hold something over somebody else and they've, uh, they're trying to get money, Black extortion, there, it was extortion. extortion. Okay. So the assistant coach <laughs> the was one. extorting, <laughs> extorting the, uh, head coach. Uh, so that recently happened. So it's a dumpster fire over there and I'm kind of just eating my popcorn, watching Duke <laughs> fail and Louisville fail and loving it. So there's yeah. that. How you be doing? Uh, I'm good. I also came back from uh, from Georgia. And so I was really excited when I saw the weather that was going to be uh, in Georgia. A beautiful 86 degrees. But the week before, it was like 100. So I was like, oh, yeah. this is perfect. And then I get down there, and producer Brian says, you guys are missing some great weather. And it sends me a screenshot of 72. And I'm like, no! <laughs> it was amazing. You were saying amazing weather. I, I thought yeah. we were having amazing weather in Georgia. Evidently not. That's, that's great for Georgia in June. Or oh, absolutely. Late May. There was, and there was no humidity, which made it even much better. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. 
uh, other than that, you know, still dealing with this drainage cough mm. thing, whatever's going on. So bear with me as I try to regain my voice and, and all that fun stuff. So it's only been like two years. My so wife says it's kind of, it. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. My wife says it's kind of sexy. So, oh, yeah, Hey, hello. So there's that. All right. So let's go to our Southern phrase of the week. Uh, you've heard the phrase, she was madder than a wet hornet or wet hen. Sorry. Um, have you ever seen a wet hen? Any of you? Nope. No. Magic man. You still alive? Um, you if still I have it, like you just yeah. smelled a fart. <laughs> 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 I promise I didn't. Okay. Um, anyways, and anybody who knows me is probably like, yeah, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> anyways, um, if I have, it was uh, probably at my sister-in-law's house. She's got some chickens and roosters. <laughs> And that's where the uh, the the meatloaf came from. I'm just kidding. Uh, so, <laughs> if you ever seen a wet hen, if you have, you know that being madder than a wet hen is very mad indeed. Hens sometimes go through a phrase called broodiness, and they'll stop mm. at no length to incubate their eggs, and they get agitated when you try to collect them. Hens used to get dunked in cold water to break their broodiness. This phase is used to describe a woman who is beyond furious and, and is using that anger to cause a scene. Uh, note to mm. self, do not attempt to uh, dunk said woman in cold water. I was going to ask if anyone that. had tried that. No. They, and if they did, they probably didn't live to no. tell the tale. No, so. they would have a Band-Aid over their face like Magic Man does now. <laughs> I think, hmm, yeah. there's the real story, right? <laughs> uh, one thing I want to bring up, producer Brian, I was uh, scrolling through the old Instagrams and mm. I noticed a SFP headline popped up on the Instagram saying, here's a new episode. Tell yeah, us about uh, the happens. SFP headlines. Well, uh, after a 361 day break, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> nice. Well done. Yeah, it was uh, it was really close. I think, I think that's the the right number. But uh, I finally found the time to record an episode. Found some clips, and I spent Tuesday evening recording it. Well so done. Got uh, I don't even know how many clips I got. There's eight or nine, I think, stories in there. Yeah, it's about a 15 minute podcast, which is long for the headline show. So yeah, you're making up for lost so, time. Yeah, making up for all that extra time. Yeah, <laughs> 361 days right there. Uh, so again, for tonight's episode, we have David Page. He is the author of Food Americana, and uh, he also created this little show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. You may have heard of it. I don't know. Uh, so he is scheduled to be on. We're excited about that. So uh, in the meantime, we're going to go through some topics. I'm going to give you some topics. You guys tell me which ones you want to go through. Uh, the West Virginia Lotto, uh, Canadian caught peeing on a camera. Uh, 17 year old fights off a bear, COVID vaccination super protection, and Biden makes sure girls get ice cream. Any of those sound interesting to y'all? I think the bear one is the most. Yeah. That's the, that's okay. like, I can't, I don't want to miss the bear conversation, right? Okay. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we did uh, Americans fight animals, and 6% of people has said that they would uh, think that they could go toe to toe or paw to fist with a bear. Um, and we thought that that was insanely insane, that there's mm. no way anybody could do that. Well, this week, 
turns out that on a security camera, uh, a bear in California jumped up on top of a brick fence, it looked like, mm-hmm. and she was she had her cubs with her. They were kind of meandering along, and then some dogs started nipping at, at the cubs, and then the mama bear gets uh, pretty upset and starts swiping at the dogs, which, you know, trying to protect her cubs. I totally get that. And then uh, uh, a bigger, a smaller, bigger mama bear, a 17-year-old girl, uh, sees that her dogs are being attacked in the backyard, and she goes, grabs the dog, and pushes this brown bear off the side of the wall, and I think even smacking it in the face while it was falling down. So evidently, either she's braver than we are, or you know something just took over. Which in an interview she said, you know, I wasn't even thinking. I just wanted that that animal to leave my dogs alone, and um, push the brown bear off the wall, and evidently won the fight. Yeah, I've seen that video. That's incredible. I mean, I think she had some extra dogs. It looked like so. I mean, yeah, there were several. I think you know one less would have been that big a deal. <laughs> I said the guy with no pets, you know, but. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, do you have any pets? <laughs> I have two children. Does that count? Um, yeah, I mean. So that's Yeah, a lot of the videos, you don't really see the cubs there. Mm-hmm. But one of the first ones I did, like the cubs were like right underneath Mama Bear, right? Yeah. Dogs come running out. Bears get out of there, or the cubs get out of there. And Mama starts like reaching down, you know, fishing for puppies. Yeah. <laughs> So she just pushed that thing right off the wall, man, and evidently won that fight. Uh, yeah, it looks like she's wearing like a bathrobe or something. Like <laughs> what was she's like the? It's a interesting attire. Maybe just a dress, but yeah, it, it might have been. Like, but it looked look like flies out. That's yeah. That's well. What's crazy is she pushes the bear off, and then she grabs the last of the dogs and shoes the other ones back in, and then the bear <laughs> jumps back up on the wall. As she's running back into the house. Oh, so. wow. It was ready for round two. All, all's well that ends well there. <laughs> Everybody was safe. No, there was no yeah. uh, dogs or humans. That could have uh, ended very badly. Yeah. For, um, good for her. Good for her. Uh, we also talked about last week how it was uh, uh, Roanoke, Virginia is imposing a, uh, a tax on plastic bags. Well, I went to the local, uh, my wife had a Walmart pickup and I was like, well, let me go pick up uh, said groceries. Went there, came back, and I started counting how many bags there were in our grocery pickup for one week. Turns out there was 30 plastic bags, 30 of them. Uh, One bag had uh, a pint of blueberries. Uh, One bag had like one, and I can understand the bread, you know, but it's very minimal what they put in these bags. Um, And so I did the math. Uh, for that one trip, would have cost me a dollar fifty in bags. If I did that every week, that would be seventy eight dollars a year in plastic bags. That's mm. that's you know, that's a good bottle of bourbon right there. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and are you going to start complaining about the way it's bagged when they're charging you per bag, or are you, are you going to expect some stuff your bread and your milk in there so, so you don't care anymore? Just like how much stuff can I put in this one plastic bag? So I'm going to get charged <laughs> right. right? Right, yeah, we're going to fill that sucker up. Uh, so West Virginia Lottery uh, came uh, came out and said, uh, they saw the Ohio Lottery, and they said, hey, we're going to 
do something similar. And producer Brian, this one was on your headlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they said, we're going to give out a million dollars. They're going to give out a couple trucks. I think it was <laughs> guns and trips to West Virginia. Uh, if you got 25 the, weekends, which is like 25 weekend. Yeah. Like 25 weekends. Oh, wow. Like I remember maybe it was 20. I'm thinking one per, I'm not sure if one person gets all 25 of those, but <laughs> that's what I, the way I read it was <laughs> you could get a, okay. like a bunch of stays, but or maybe it's just 25 trips in the West Virginia state parks or something. Gotcha. Um, so, so they're trying to get on the lotto bandwagon. Um, and so I got to thinking, like, what what are the things that North Carolina could give away? If, you know, I mean, West Virginia, that's pretty typical of of uh, guns and trucks and money, right? Mm-hmm. So what what would infamously North Carolina give away? Cheer wine. <laughs> so a case of cheer wine. Case of cheer wine. If you yeah. got your uh, COVID vaccination. All right. That's on the list. And then barbecue. Mm-hmm. All right. How much barbecue uh, would would we need to give away to to compensate people <laughs> or the, to encourage people <laughs> to to get their COVID shot? Well, you know, we've got some nice beaches and stuff. You could do like an Outer yeah. Banks vacation, yeah. or uh, yeah, go you know stomp stomp through the mosquito lands out there on the East Coast or something. Yeah. <laughs> Spent. Spend the night in the Biltmore house like, oh. and be treated like how they would have been treated back then, like with servants around and stuff. Kind of have a, We're going all out. That would be a fun. A Biltmore yeah. vacation. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, maybe maybe play a round of golf or basketball with MJ. Mm. You know, he's, he's yeah. living here. That would be good. Uh, yeah. Any other? Any like other season tickets or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sweet tickets to the Hornets. Yeah. Or Panthers. anything, you know, NASCAR. You know, you yeah. Could, I feel like we could mm. we could uh, call old Roy Cooper up and give him our suggestions. What do you think? Yeah. Free subscription to the Southern Fried Philosophy podcast. Oh, that'd be good. Hey. Maybe, uh, at, maybe awesome. the winner would then donate a million dollars to the podcast. That'd be great. There you go. All right. I did see actually today that. <laughs> Some clinics are giving out $25 like, cash cards hmm. for vaccinations. Can, Locally, can it apparently. retro back? <laughs> I want my $25 <laughs> gift card. I wish I wasn't so quick, right? I know. Man, and, I should have held then, out. I just saw this before we started recording. Anheuser-Busch has said <laughs> that they're going to give out $5 free beer credits once hmm. 70% of the country has been vaccinated. To whom? They're just going to, I guess, it doesn't say the U.S. will give, oh, <clears throat> announced Wednesday it will give all U.S. residents age 21 and older a $5 free beer credit. Where? Once 70% of the country is vaccinated. Like, where do you get said beer, though? And for It's going to be like a coupon or something, probably. Oh, okay. So you so, probably go on the website, enter your... You know, give me your social security number, date of birth, mother's maiden name, and then uh, you get a five dollar. You know, which gets you a six pack of something in a red can. I think the the website is actually uh, sfp-anheuserbusch.com. 
to put right. in all that information. That's, that's got to be it. Yeah. Well, we won't do anything with that. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> I'd be like on Craigslist. Like, does anybody want this information? I'm horrible at that. Good thing I'm a good guy. Um, all right. Can you talk talk to us about this Canadian peeing on the camera? Yeah. So uh, a few weeks ago, uh, there was a lawmaker in Canada who was – Went for a run and then came back. Apparently, he just had the Zoom open. Yeah, we he, talked he about this guy open. on our show. That's stark naked. So, okay, it's been a month, right? <laughs> right. Well, he did the same thing, but this time, I guess his laptop points towards the bathroom, maybe. He got caught again with his with stuff hanging out, basically. You know? mm-hmm. I don't think he just heard it, or but this wasn't a public session, so you know, only his coworkers got the privilege but now he's basically stepping down mm-hmm. from some of his more important duties, and he says he's getting help. Yes, he is. Does that mean he's going to get someone to like close his laptop for him? <laughs> is that what help means in this situation? I think he realized that after the second time in a couple of months, he realized he had a problem with that. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I mean, maybe this is, I like this too on, much, right? I mean, you don't do that twice. No. That's, that's, yeah, that's, uh, there's something going on. There's some exhibitionism or something here. Mm-hmm. Magic Man, what are your thoughts on that? It just doesn't make sense how somebody <laughs> wouldn't realize that they're uh, exposed and, and, you know, with a camera on. I mean, I, I don't know. That's just, yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Because, I mean, most people would be uh, keeping an eye on their modesty. You know, it's kind of, sure. Weird. That's, yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand. I didn't understand yeah. the first time, and now it's like, okay. I may have understood don't even understand the first time. more. <laughs> but don't understand this at all. All right. So I yeah. just recently got a message that our, our guest is here. And now, our feature presentation. All right, uh, Mr. Page, are you on with us? Oh, you probably want me to turn on my camera, huh? I'm sorry. It's whatever you want to do. Yeah, 40 years in television, I can't handle this. I, it, it's, my, it's obviously my advanced age. <laughs> How are you doing, sir? I, uh, I am wonderful and um, shocked that anyone would consider um, Hornet's tickets a gift. <laughs> I am too. Throwing. Wow. Yeah. No, yeah. I, we've had a horrible, horrible season this year. Yeah. Right? Sorry about that. You had the nachos, though. I mean, it's great to go sit and <laughs> you see nachos. You know, nachos and, yeah. So I would say if you're going to give away the season tickets, you have to do the full package of food as well. Because then, then it's worth driving down. Yeah, because there. there's yeah. nothing like yeah. sports stadium catering to really, really make your day. Is that I, uh, the next book for you? Uh, sports stadium food. It, might, it might actually play a little part in my next book. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm looking at okay. uh, other ways in which Americans enjoy food other than sitting at a table and having someone come over and serve you. So that could, mm. that could get in there. Um, and, okay. you know, food at stadiums and, and arenas and such has actually been going kind of upscale over the last mm-hmm. couple of yeah. decades. So. You know, what's really fascinating is nachos um, became a thing when they were uh, introduced as a concession at, I think it was Texas Stadium. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, but there was a guy wanted to sell them and the, the folks running the concession said no one will buy them. They're too messy. And they finally tried it and nachos became the 
thing that they are now all across the country. Oh, wow. So you've gotten your, your unexpected food tidbit for the evening. I mean, we can just shut this whole thing down. How about Let's that? all go well, home. Thanks for coming. Great. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So w- with us, we have our special guest, David Page. He is the author of Food Americana. And again, he, he created this little show that you might have heard of, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, Triple D, uh, as some may also know it as. Uh, David, we're very excited to have you on the show. Obviously, None of us have missed a meal, and we love food. But join, so the, join you, the club. <laughs> you, uh, as a guest, are right up the alley, so we really appreciate you being on the show with us. Well, thanks for asking me. Absolutely. Uh, so I did get your book, and I did uh, do through Audible, so I listened to it uh, on a trip. And don't ever do that, because it was... Every mile, I just got hungrier and hungrier. Kept and hungrier. pulling off for for little <laughs> snacks here and there. Yeah, I was just like, okay, I, uh, we're on the barbecue chapter, so I had to go get some barbecue. And then now Chinese My wife is well, like, this in the six- part of the country you're driving through, there's like nowhere to stop. Well, where are oh, you driving? There's plenty uh, from Charlotte <laughs> oh, to Georgia. Oh, there's plenty of barbecue. Like South there's, there's all sorts of stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff. That's a nice little My experience driving through South Georgia, there's not like, you know, you'll see if I hit a big city and then there's nothing for 100 miles. Well, yeah, there's some of that too. Yeah, but you get to, I mean, maybe I'm remembering, I used to live in Georgia a long, long time ago. And my sense of it would be when you get to a small town, go find yourself a meet and three. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was at night, so it wasn't, you know, not everything was open. And I was really charging for the Bucky's gas station so i was kind of saving for that have you ever experienced a bucky's i don't believe that i have so explain that to me so uh i don't even know how to explain it's like a walmart gas station it's got everything that you possibly could want um they would it goes you could get uh furniture you can get uh pictures with sayings on it and then it goes to uh kolaches you're, I know you're familiar with kolaches. Oh, kolaches. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Yeah, so what, why, are they, why are they there? So they started in Texas. Um, and yeah. kolaches oh, the, are huge the, in Texas. It's a, it's a chain they, of... Czech, I think? Uh, oh, they, somebody, they were Central German? European somehow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you know, nine it's, different types of, of kolaches, and they have sweet ones, which there's plenty of those, and then there's brisket. It's delicious. Well, br- brisket is God's gift. Absolutely. There is, there is nothing. I, I was lucky enough years ago doing diners to visit Louis Miller's Barbecue in Taylor, Texas, mm. which to this day I believe makes the finest brisket on earth. Now, full stop, I have not been to Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, which is supposedly <laughs> God's ultimate gift, yeah. but because uh, he, I mean, he uses prime meat, which which seems a little insane for barbecue. <laughs> yeah. But watching Bobby Muller, who was alive at the time, his son Wayne now has the place. But Bobby's father, Louis, started the place, and, and I watched Bobby making these briskets. He rubbed them with salt and pepper. That's it. Put them wow on this offset smoker that had been working for some sixty years or so. At certain points, he would turn around and just move briskets to different parts of the smoker where I guess the heat was different. And you'd say to him, Bobby, why'd you do that? And he'd say it was time. 
And then when it was time to eat, and you know, traditional Texas, they slice it for you on a butcher paper, you pay by the pound. Mm-hmm. It's it's just heaven. It's the most unbelievable, mm-hmm. I was going to say meat, but dish you'll find anywhere. And uh, <laughs> and everyone has their own Texas favorite. You know, someone's going to argue with me and say it's the salt lick. They're wrong, but <laughs> it's an amazing experience. That was beautiful. Were it not for bagels, lox, and cream cheese, then Texas brisket would be my death row meal. Oh, oh, yeah, but really? but bagels and lox still come in first. So. Wow. Okay, so where are you from originally? Oh, who's Jewish talking? from New York? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, duh. Okay. Took a while, huh? Not me. <laughs> yeah, fine. <laughs> you know, I I live now. My wife and I live about an hour forty five minutes from New York City. Our daughter lives in the city, so every time to go in and visit her is an opportunity to stop by the appetizing store and leave with a pound of lox, a pound of whitefish. Yeah. Um, good guess on the New York Jewish thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I listened to that chapter and it was really interesting. I, I had no idea. I mean, again, I grew up in Florida, moved to Kentucky, Texas. And well, what here. part of Florida? Jacksonville. Okay, that is not where my people go when they're forced to retire and move to Florida. <laughs> no, it's right. It's a law, you know. At sixty-five, you got to leave New York and, and move to Boca. But, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, the whole the whole bagels and lox story is fascinating because there's so much. Yeah. On the one hand, what was an ethnic Jewish dish then became a New York dish because New York embraces its ethnic foods is now so national that the the company that sells the most bagels in America is now Dunkin' Donuts. Now, those aren't New York bagels. Um, real bagels. Although, the, increasingly, in places you wouldn't expect, there are people now making a living making artisanal bagels. There's mm-hmm. a place in Denver where they even treat the water to approximate the mineral content of New York water because allegedly... It's New York water that makes New York bagels different. I, no one's ever, you know, no scientist has ever shown me that info. Yeah, they said that about the pizza dough too, right? Yeah. It's, and, the, it's the water. But again, uh, look, pizza dough is dependent on the protein content of the wheat you use and the temperature and style of the oven you use. When mm-hmm. Italian immigrants came over here, they encountered uh higher protein wheat, you ended up with a different kind of pizza. Mm. But we do that to all foods that starts, well, our entire cuisine, the premise of my book is that our entire cuisine is created from foods of other countries and cultures, which we adopt and modify. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, people talk about it's not authentic. Well, it's authentic Chinese American. No, it's not authentic Chinese, although Chinese is a series of regional cuisines, so you're better off saying authentic uh, Cantonese or Beijing mm-hmm. style as opposed to Chinese. Um, nonetheless, pizza uh, in America has has had a glorious run. Is it similar to pizza in um, Italy? No. <laughs> there are a few places that make pizza napolitano well there are many more places that make it poorly 
because mm -hmm. pizza napolitano made the way the Italians want to make it is soft and soupy. And if you give that pizza to an American pizza fan, for the most part, they're going to turn their nose up at it. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, th there's a, um, a guy in, um, in Phoenix, Chris Bianco, who runs a place called Pizzeria Bianco, which is generally considered to be the ultimate artisanal pizza place, uh, not just in the world, but probably in the universe. Um, Whoa. And he doesn't make pizza Napolitano. He said, I, I don't I don't particularly like a soppier or softer pizza. So he uses the same ingredients, but he makes the crust to be more like one you'd find in Puglia or Rome. Uh, and he's upfront about it, <laughs> as opposed to a lot of places making a very crispy pizza Napolitano. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, your book, by the way, is fascinating. I, I loved, you. I Thank loved you. it. I really did. It's, um, it, you know, it's a little bit of diners, drives, and the dives, and where you you get to hear the different restaurants, and you get to hear people's thoughts on the dish. Um, but it, there's also so much history. Almost, uh, there's a, a History Channel series yeah, the called foods. "Foods That Make America." Yeah, and, and it kind of reminds me of a little bit of that as well, Thank which you. is fascinating. Thank um, you. And then it has recipes on there, which I'm like. This is perfect. You know, what, what, what I like, and, and the recipes were not initially my idea. The publisher suggested them. Um, so there's a reason to have a publisher. Uh, <laughs> but what I did, you know, we didn't want to make a cookbook out of it, but right. we have a recipe at the end of each chapter, and most of them are famous recipes, like the, mm -hmm. the white barbecue sauce from Big Bob Gibson's down in Alabama, or... Um, Trying to think, of, uh, I think it's Tony's pizza, Tony Gemignani's pizza recipe that I use. Tony is one of the leading figures in pizza in America. I actually audited, uh, he runs a pizza school out of one of his restaurants in San Francisco. And I, I spent a few days there learning that it's really harder to make pizza than you think. And I stink at it. <laughs> <laughs> You, you mentioned there just burning your hand trying to get that uh, that pizza to go around very quickly. Well, it was a Napolitano-style crust, which means you've got 60 to 90 seconds to deal with it. And you got to turn it while it's in this 1,000-degree oven. And turning it isn't a matter of turning it. It's a matter of tilting it and then pulling the peel back. And some mm. physics law makes it fall like it should. But... Mm. If you don't, if it doesn't drop exactly where it was before, and that, because it's been where it was, that part of the pizza deck is cooler than the rest. If it doesn't exactly drop there, then you start burning the pieces of the crust that are outside that initial circle. It's, yeah. huh? As I said in the book, I was not the smart kid in the class. <laughs> uh, David, which one was your favorite chapter to write in the book? Probably because I got so deeply immersed in this massive event and was there with people I knew previously, uh, it would probably be the barbecue chapter, which I bookended mm. with my visit to Memphis in May. I was very lucky when I decided to, uh, I decided to go to Memphis in May. Then I started researching past winners and it turned out that the winner of the previous year, and once more before that, was the shed 
in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, which I had put on diners in like our second season. So mm. I knew them. I called and they we actually made them kind of nationally famous at the time. Uh, I called them up and said, hey, could I hang out with you? Could I be a fly on the wall as you try to repeat as grand champs? And they said, of course. So that's a writer's dream. I mean, I'm inside um, a micro universe that is reflective of everything that happens at this event. And also because of my association with, with those folks, uh, it, it gave me some cred with other folks at the event. And also I got to eat some unbelievable pork. Oh, it was just, I bet. they do whole hog and you just, okay. it, it's unbelievable. Just, there's just <laughs> pig fat everywhere. Yep. <laughs> That's like a typical Tuesday for me. Okay, well, um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I thought was really cool, and I think it was in that chapter as well, is you said you can't just go to one restaurant. Everybody's like, oh, this is the best restaurant. Uh, you need to go to it. But to really understand just barbecue or just that that state, you have to go to different uh, barbecue places in that region just to understand that when it's not just one restaurant. And I think for so many of us, we hear, oh, this is the best. You have to go there. But for you, it's try all these other ones as well. You've got to. Um, first of all, especially with bar barbecue is such an individualized art form. It is completely unique to whoever's making it. For one thing, yeah. barbecue has all these rules that people then religiously break. You know, technically, barbecue is low and slow cooking over indirect heat. Mm -hmm. Except for the very famous guy, I think, in the Carolinas who cooks his whole hog on direct heat in four hours at like nine bazillion degrees. Or uh, uh, the Rendezvous restaurant in Memphis, which is famous for its ribs. Those ribs are cooked on direct heat. There, the, 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 Charlie Vertigos, who, who opened the restaurant, started making those ribs because when he took over the space, he found an abandoned cold chute and figured he could turn it into a grill. So those are grilled ribs, um, wow. which is not what anyone would expect the alleged best ribs in Memphis to be. And, and I like them very much. I, I'm not going to say they're the best in Memphis by any means, but they're damn good ribs. And also hmm. when you're attending Memphis in May and uh, a torrential rainstorm breaks out and the rendezvous is right across the street from your hotel, it's a good place to hmm. eat. Yeah. It's such a subjective thing too, right? Like yeah. the best ribs, if you go to like competition rules versus what people well, competition associate rules. as good rules, you know, fall off the bone. Yeah. Well, ribs should not mushy, fall off. Which I don't like. Yeah, it's and, a, yeah, and competition. Anyone who competes will tell you competition barbecue is intense because the judges in the blind box competition, where they don't know whose product it is, they only get one taste. You got mm -hmm. one piece of something to bring it all home to you. So the the taste profile of much of this stuff is as if it's on steroids. And 
would not be something you wanted to eat a whole lot of. Uh, on the other hand, the yeah. judges, uh, the uh, folks from the shed, one of the judges who had, um, they have blind box and they also have in person where it's not anonymous. One of the judges who was there in person later complained to them that the pork was too moist. Now, hmm. the whole goal of barbecuing pork is to make it moist. It's like saying Halle Berry is too pretty to be a movie star. Right? <laughs> you know, it's like, hello? Knock, knock? And it was the finest pork I've ever eaten in my life. So uh, what do I know? Oh, wow. Wow. Well, see, yeah. I, 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 I found the right position to be in. Uh I, I went into the trailer when uh, they were filling the, the blind boxes. And once the boxes were filled and removed, I ate all the pork that had been left behind. <laughs> right. That's genius. <laughs> well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> how was the book inspired? Like, how did you come up with the idea? Well, uh, two things. First of all, writing for television is far more complicated than people think, but it isn't like writing a book. In a book, you get to sit down and just tell your story. It was a dark and stormy night, and then this happened, and then Oedipus killed his father, and off we went. <laughs> in television, you need to write invisibly with a goal of using the pictures and sound as your main storytelling device, and the words should almost invisibly propel the viewer from mm. one event to the next. And every TV producer thinks, that's hard. Writing a book must be so much more fun because you just sit down and say whatever you want. So like most producers, I'd gone through decades thinking I had a book in me. And finally, one day I decided it's time to pull it out. My, my interest in food uh, in the etymology of dishes, in the people who make the food, create the food, was no less than it had been when I did diners or a follow-up series about craft beer. And I was looking around for a new project. I, I wanted to kind of get re-energized, and I thought to myself, it's time. Well, let's put this to paper. Hmm. What I didn't realize is uh, the amount of time it would take. I, I figured about a year in fact, it took two uh, because naively as a first-time author, I decided to make a book out of a multitude of different subjects. I could have done a book on hamburgers. Instead, hamburgers is a chapter out of 10 or 12, whatever, whatever I have. The research for that chapter could have supported a book of its own. So I ended up kind of researching a dozen books to make this one. But I enjoyed it immensely. I'm, I'm very proud of it. And it's getting mm -hmm. good reviews. And I'm already working on a sequel. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very yeah. good. I don't want to, to, to pardon the, fun, the, the pun, I don't mean to hog the conversation. Feel free. So uh, <laughs> Magic Man and, and Producer Brian, if you have questions, please interject as well. So one of the things we like to ask our guests is, how do you like 
to make your meatloaf? Like, what what is your? <laughs> this your is way a serious question. Make it? Yeah, it's an it, <laughs> okay. inside kind of yes. conversation. We ask a lot of our okay. Uh, I know that guests. theoretically the best combination is beef, veal, and pork. But I never get around to having all three of them in the house at the same time. So generally, I make a basic 80-20 ground beef meatloaf. I include eggs, breadcrumbs, some Worcestershire sauce, salt, pepper, um, sometimes garlic powder, sometimes not. Usually cumin, which which I find uh, is a terrific additive to Hmm. virtually any protein. And then I... Uh, glaze it heavily with uh, tomato paste and ketchup, uh, and, and I is. go for I go for um, a pretty obscenely uh, thick coating, <laughs> and, mm. in the belief that somehow it will seal in the juices. I don't know. <laughs> and then I I put it in the oven. Uh, I cook on higher heat than many people. I cook a lot of proteins around five hundred. And uh, then when I pull it out, uh, I cut it into wonderful pieces, and it usually falls apart in a way I wish it wouldn't. But it's terrific. (laughs) That's fantastic. So that's how I make me twenty. Sounds good. (laughs) It sounds very good. Yes. Okay. We had uh, the 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 background on that is we had one of our uh, our uh, sponsors say that he made meatloaf, but it was just meat, onions, and uh, pepper, and that was it. Yeah. And we're like, that's not meatloaf. That's just a hamburger. So last season, yeah. our our thing was just uh, we were, we're asking everybody how they make meatloaf. So that's the backstory on that question. Yeah, but meatloaf's such an ultimate comfort food. And, it really and is. It 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 feels like home cooking if you're cooking for a family. But let's face it, it's you know you just throw some stuff in a thing and <laughs> off it goes. So, <laughs> um, you know, and and especially. With with both parents working uh, for the last, I don't know, 50 mm-hmm. years, 60 years, the whole concept of family meals has been jeopardized uh, to such a degree that any opportunity to produce a comfort food favorite is a, a great thing. I actually made my wife a recipe. I, I, I don't cook from recipes. I don't clip recipes. But the Jewish Daily Forward, which in my grandfather's day was a Yiddish newspaper in New York. It's now, I mean, you can still get a Yiddish edition, but it's become um, a pretty widely read newspaper to people whose interests include uh, Jewish things. They introduced their new food columnist. And in her first piece, she uh, included a recipe for one of her favorite dishes that her mother used to make. And okay. it was chicken thighs basically in a mushroom soup casserole sauce. Now, I have been okay. just mocking my wife pleasantly for years because she likes that horrible mushroom soup green bean casserole people have at Thanksgiving. And I right. you know, pretend to die when she raises it. <laughs> so I sent her kind of half as a joke, would you like me to make this? And she said, yeah. So I actually cooked with mushroom soup the other night. And it was pretty good. <laughs> well, there you go. The can? The can. The, you know, the condensed, co- condensed canned mushroom soup, which, especially yeah. in the Midwest, is an ingredient, a, a major ingredient in any kind mm-hmm. of casserole. I mean, we lived in Minnesota for 10 years 
where they call it hot dish when they just put a bunch of stuff in a pan. Uh, the one thing this didn't have that Minnesota is famous for, which is generally a pretty good idea, is they top a lot of stuff with tater tots. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you can't oh. beat a tot. <laughs> right. Uh, just just to add a little bit, if you go back to your meatloaf recipe, put some honey on on your uh, on the top. Excellent of idea. With the, Excellent, especially especially because it'll caramelize. That's, that, do that, especially that temperature. Yeah. It's gonna five hundred <laughs> with honey. You gotta get a nice crust <laughs> yeah, on there. That's, there you go. I will <laughs> definitely do that. I used to use maple syrup in a similar way when mm -hmm. I lived in New England. Um, uh, even because I'm a huge bourbon fan, I even mix a little bourbon with the ketchup and the honey and then put that on top. Well, yeah. I'm a big bourbon fan, too. Why would you want to okay. burn out the alcohol? Uh, it, you get that taste on it, you know, just yeah, no, a little bit I, of that I, taste. I, I, so, I'm joking with you. But see, what's, your, what's your bourbon you go to? Uh, Weller's. Nope. Uh, oh. I, I'm in, and uh, you're not supposed to admit to things like this. Okay. It's just even though us. it's not bourbon, I like Jack. Okay. You know, it's a Tennessee sour mash, which technically isn't bourbon, but you know, my daughter used to compete in Lexington, Kentucky in mm. show jumping. Come on. And okay. uh we <laughs> we did a lot of bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. You mentioned there's a chapter on barbecue yes. in your book. Uh, I'm a North Carolina mm. born and raised, so I have very specific opinions. Well, what part of North Carolina? What's your sauce? <laughs> I'm smack, I'm from Charlotte. Yeah. I'm right on Charlotte, so I'm smack in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I tend to, tend to get the Lexington styles, what's served around mm -hmm. here. Uh, I'm not saying I don't have a bias, but did, when you got, did you get into the history of that at all in your book? Yeah, a lot of that. Um, certainly the mustard sauce in South Carolina, but I think mm -hmm. the yes. the general use of vinegar in North Carolina as I recall, and don't quote me, I'd, I'd have to open the book and my research again. I think a lot of that was attributed to German immigrants who were trying to replicate the flavors of dishes like sauerbraten that they had left behind. Hmm. Um, although, I mean, look, vin vinegar had always been used sure. as a rub on whole animal barbecue. But I think a lot of that went back to the Germans. Yeah. My, Interesting. My understanding was the German, like the Lexington style... With the tomato added, well, maybe. tomato was added after Heinz ketchup was invented. It was in the fifties, I think. No, maybe. Heinz ketchup was invented. Oh, I want to say nineteen oh four or something like that. But okay. that's when you started getting red sauces. It was. It mm -hmm. was. Um, I have to open the book and, and check quickly. It was introduced to the world at one of those World's Fair like ex expositions maybe the one in st louis uh but that's what caught on although as as i quote i think it's john t Ed, no it's not john t Ed, it's an authority on on barbecue and southern food as saying you know in, in the final analysis regional styles kind of boil down to one or a few pitmasters who that was their special blend mm -hmm. and when people started to like it others started to copy it uh some of the historical research that i read but did not quote in the book attempted to link particular sauces to particular pitmasters who supposedly were the first to do it but it yeah. uh 
And, and it's fascinating because on an etymological level, barbecue is the most personal of foods. You know, I decided to do mine this way. And then other people started to copy me. And all of a sudden, I have a regional style uh, on top of the fact that the animal use depended on what was available in that region. Sure. I mean, uh, you don't get a lot of mutton outside of Kentucky. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but it's good. It's damn good. Yes, sir. Um so we're yeah we're all in North Carolina. I mean, I mean the the name of the the show is Southern Fried. What are some trends that you see in America and food, and then maybe specifically the South? Well, America is drawing from the South in one particular respect, which is the mania for fried chicken sandwiches. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> fried fried chicken having been created in the South. Yes, sir. Uh, and the insane chicken sandwich war, which, which I chronicle in the book, um, as as one of the experts I talked to explained to me, he said, look, chicken has surpassed beef in terms mm -hmm. of uh, the amount that we eat. He said, people may think they're doing it or claim they're doing it for health reasons, but it's almost all fried. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Nationally, I, I see... I see Americans becoming a little more adventurous in that regional cuisines of the various countries whose foods we've adapted are starting to creep into the U.S. from areas that we previously hadn't been eating their foods from, such as uh, with Mexican food, a dish called birria de res, which is a spicy stewed beef dish. Birria was uh, first noted in central Mexico, where it was generally goat. That would just be birria. Then birria de res, which is birria made of beef, made an appearance. And over time, it traveled north to Tijuana, of all places, where some industrial hmm. chef decided to make tacos out of it in a specific way. You take the taco, you dip it in the cooking liquid, you put it on the grill. Now, right off the bat, it's turned a shade of red. You start grilling it, you put birria, the beef, on top of it, you fold it over, you flip it on the grill, and you serve it crispy with a cup of the cooking liquid, which now you're calling consomme. And the way to eat it is to dip the taco into the consomme. And it's amazing. I drove with my wife 90 minutes from my home in South Jersey to a truck on the street in South Philadelphia to have some absolutely amazing birria. And birria has crossed the country. I mean, it went from Tijuana to L.A. and I guess San Diego. And then it started moving east. It may become part of Mexican-American cuisine or it may have its moment and then disappear but it, it's having a hell of a moment right now. Uh, with respect to food wow. in the South, let's talk about barbecue for a minute. I, there's a trend <laughs> that you're either going to like or not like, depending upon your personal opinion. But it used to be that, that you had to go to the place that made that regional kind of barbecue to get it. And I looked forward to that. I looked forward mm. to the fact that there were regional foods that you had to go find. Over the last 10 years, uh, 
barbecue of all sorts has become available everywhere. In North Carolina now, there's a piece in the uh, Texas Monthly Magazine, which I haven't yet read. I just I, I pulled it aside. That questions whether or not you can get good Texas brisket in North Carolina, where a number of barbecue restaurants are now offering it. There's a very good barbecue restaurant in Chicago called Smoke with a Q that was premised on opening on the idea of bringing together various kinds of barbecue from all over the country. On the one hand, I don't Hmm. think people in Utah should be deprived of Memphis-style barbecue. On the other hand, there's something nostalgic in me that that wants to have to go to Memphis to get it. And that Mm -hmm. hasn't happened just with barbecue. I mean, you can get lobster rolls all over America now. I used to go Mm -hmm. to um, Maine with my parents in the summer <laughs> to enjoy lobster. That that trend, the uh, nationalization of formerly regional foods will continue. With respect to the South, for the longest time now, you've been able to get uh, Southern biscuits all over the country. Mm. I remember doing a piece. Uh, can you though? Can you really? Well, can it, you really get Okay, it I mean. depends. There's three guys <laughs> from North Carolina who went to Portland, Oregon, and opened a a biscuit shop. And they're kind of famous. And at this moment, of course, I can't remember the name of their place. But we put them on diners like 15 years ago, and they're still in business, and they're expanding. And I would bet that it's a good biscuit. Is it the biscuit I would get in a small town in uh, southern Georgia? Probably not. Should people be deprived of biscuits in Portland? Probably not. Has the biscuit as a special entity been forever sullied and I would say destroyed by Burger King? Not Burger King. Who's the one that, that, yeah, you can get biscuits at Burger King. That's not a biscuit. Can you though? (laughs) KFC has some nasty biscuits. The biscuit as a representative, hey, this is real Southern, uh, ingredient has gone national. Is that good? Well, a bad biscuit is not a good thing. A good biscuit Mm -hmm, is wonderful. Um, But then you get into the subtleties of trying to explain to someone why mixing bacon fat, milk or cream, and flour and stirring it around for a while is a really good thing to eat for breakfast. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, in fact, it's interesting. Biscuits and gravy remains totally mm. regional. Um, now, grits, That's- interestingly <laughs> enough, have moved on a little bit. The, mm. the shrimp and grits thing became trendy. Um, yeah. I, I live in New Jersey. I make shrimp and grits at home. Nothing like I could get in... Uh, Georgia, Charleston, you know, because A, I'm using frozen shrimp, and B, I'm using instant grits. But it's a start, okay? That's like using Bisquake for biscuits. Look, I I have said to my wife, I'm going to learn to make grits from scratch. Oh, come on. We. It's, it, it's not hard. You just have to get the right yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, to start the, with. you have to get that. And that, yeah, and, and look, that's become foodie snob heaven anyway. 
ever since the restaurateurs of Charleston um, made a very big deal about heritage ingredients with which they're cooking. And, and, and now one of those chefs has moved to Nashville. Um, you get into that whole rarefied foodie thing of, I don't know the difference, but it's got to be that. You know, we're, we're at a point yeah. where um, the, the maize that's used in tortillas, the best maize, uh, the heritage stuff, is being bought up by highfalutin restaurants in the United States. And it's, this happened a long time ago, I, I expect, but it's uh, completely out of the price range now for the average Mexican, uh, most of whom uh, Goodness. are making masa, are buying prepared masa and not, certainly not nixtamalizing it themselves. Going back to uh, anywhere outside of its region, sourdough bread in San Francisco. Well, uh, an awful lot of people will tell you that they perfected sourdough bread during the <laughs> lockdown. Oh, well. But I will not argue with you. Uh, that is a dish that is, I think, a lot harder for people to make than they think. And the best mm -hmm. I've ever had is in San Francisco. Uh, mm -hmm. I have not tried to make it myself. But it's like any, look, bread is the, probably the most abused ingredient in our menus in that we have so come to accept bread that is industrially produced, hmm. wrapped in plastic, hmm. that we forget what real bread can taste like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. You know. Oh, yeah. For Fresh baked bread. My wife and I, we've made a simple recipe with flour, yeast, salt, and water. Really? That's not, that's it. Mm. That That's all that's in there. And it is so good. Yeah. So well, good. You know, bread's Compared one of those things that's going to vary a ton by region, even if you use the same recipe because of the climate yeah. and the humidity and the temperature. Like, it, you're not, if you make the, if we make sourdough here, you do the exact same process you do in California. It's not going to taste no, the same. No, it's going to be different. It's not going to look the it's, same. But again, yeah. baking is science. Cooking mm -hmm. can be art. There's room for a little of this or a little of that. Baking is literally a chemical equation of the way in which different molecules are going to interact at particular heats in particular volumes. Uh, baking scares me. I, I, <laughs> I don't bake. I love to cook, but I don't bake. Um, wow. Yeah, it's just, that's a whole different ball of wax. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about the, the trends. How has COVID factored into American trends and what kind of where we're, we're going now? Well, it's factored into how we get our food more than what we are going to eat. First off, it killed a whole bunch of mom and pop restaurants, which is a shame mm -hmm. because to me, those are the most prized part of our culinary ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, secondly, we're going to have permanent changes in the way in which food is delivered. For one thing, ghost kitchens, which had already been on the rise, uh, are here to stay and mm -hmm. will likely continue to proliferate because for those listening who may not realize it. Ghost kitchens are large kitchens that pretend to be restaurants online, but have no bricks and mortar. 
all they do is delivery. And especially as real estate prices in major cities hmm. um, cripple restaurateurs. I mean, we were losing an awful lot of restaurants in New York just because of raised rents before the pandemic. The concept of running four or five different virtual brands out of the same commercial kitchen without paying servers, without paying rent, without with, with no front of the house costs yeah. can be extremely appealing and, and thus leave an awful lot of the workforce without work. But we're going to continue to see more of those. We're going to see an increased level of usage compared to pre-pandemic of drive-throughs, uh, deliveries, takeout of any kind. Having succeeded with a limited menu during the pandemic may continue in that direction. But it, I think overall, the big impact is going to be an increasing amount of food compared to before the pandemic being eaten away from the restaurant. I mean, 7-Eleven at this point is experimenting with drive-thrus. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, the drive through you're going to see drive throughs in places you would not have expected them in the past. Why not just get like car hops to come out while you're pumping your gas you know, on skates or something? Well, um, uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> if you have a 7-Eleven. Open that gas station. <laughs> there you go. You know, but it's interesting because convenience stores, which are so often associated with gas stations, are increasingly becoming more and more restaurant-like as it is. Mm-hmm. I, I live in New Jersey where... Wawa is legendary, and if you watched Mayor of mm-hmm. Easttown, um, she certainly liked her Wawa. The amount of food being offered cooked fresh at Wawa's, uh, I mean, they, this is part of the corporate plan. They've really expanded what they're mm-hmm. doing behind that counter now. It's much more than breakfast, and um, it appears to involve real cooking. <laughs> well, so many places don't. Yeah. I mean, you get food at oh, yeah. uh, you go to Starbucks, anything there that is allegedly cooked is simply heated in a convection mm-hmm. microwave. I, I got a great story for you, too. I mean, as a country, um, I do not understand why we just lemming-like um, support chain restaurants over mom and pops where the food is better. Uh, my, my daughter's high school graduation, uh, high school, college graduation was in New York City. And it was a, this was a couple of years ago before the pandemic, it was a warm morning and all the family was gathered and I was deputized as in ordered to be the guy to go across the street and get him <laughs> on breakfast sandwiches. And <laughs> kind of like biscuits and gravy in the South, the New York City breakfast sandwich, which is a bacon, egg and cheese on a soft roll is a legendary food item and done right. It is a perfect <laughs> food item. So I walked across the street looking to get some breakfast sandwiches, and there were two storefronts next to each other. And the one on the left had this line coming out the door and snaking down the street. The one on the right had no line. So I walked into the one on the right where it was a bodega, which is a New York convenience store. Uh, The name comes from its initial evolution in generally Puerto Rican neighborhoods, but it, there are bodegas everywhere. I walked mm-hmm. in and a, a guy who'd probably made 330,000 breakfast sandwiches in the last week was behind a grill. And I ordered our breakfast sandwiches and he's fresh cracking the eggs and flipping stuff around. And uh, he did, he did it right. These were going to be perfect. I walked out 
And the line was still spilling out of the place next door, which was, of course, a Starbucks. Now, Mm. nobody in that line thought to have real food cooked fresh. I don't get it. Mm. I just don't get it. Yeah, I think there's something about the consistency of knowing, like, if I go to McDonald's A and I go to McDonald's B, it's going to be the same exact thing. And not to pick on McDonald's, but it's going to be the same exact disappointing Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, I'm I'm not opposed to all (laughs) fast food restaurants. I think In-N-Out does a terrific job. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think In-N-Out has a mystique that may make me currently think the food there is better than it is. The same way when I couldn't get Coors back east, I thought Coors was something special. And then they started shipping (laughs) beer back east, and I realized that it tasted like the urine of a farm animal. Um, <laughs> with, with all due respect, of course, sure. uh, I'm not going to materially way. injure them in, in how much they sell. <laughs> but at least at In-N-Out, um, they make it when you ask for it. It's, it's fresh beef. And let's be clear. If you have an animal style with all the sauce on it, you can't taste the hamburger. It's just this <laughs> wonderful, messy thing that, you know, but it's great. Uh, yeah, I'm not a fan <laughs> personally, but it's, you're not a fan. I'm not, I've, I've had it once. I was in California a couple of years yeah. ago. You know, you know, if you're there, you got to have course. it right. This Didn't do it for you. And I got a, a double double animal style. Well, that that look, like if that. if you don't like a double double animal style, then you're not going to like In and Out because that is their quintessential right. burger, yeah. and it sends me it. into orbit. I will eat all of those that you don't. <laughs> I will bear that civic responsibility. That being said, I also can't eat bagels and locks for breakfast. I think it's delicious, but not at eight in the morning. I just can't do it. I'm sorry. That's I'm, but, you know, different people, different I'm tastes. I'm guessing you're not of my tribe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I would be remiss. If, if, are we allowed to talk about diners and drive? Anything you want? Go ahead. So how did that start? Like you were in network uh, news before Triple D. And then how did that transition happen? Well, I had been in network news for 15 years or more. And I didn't like where it was going. I was um, blind producing Good Morning America uh, at that point, which means subject to the sign off of an EP Every third week, the show was mine, which also meant every third week, I got a week, in a week, 12 hours of sleep. Um, mm-hmm. But more to the point, you remember uh, when Regis did uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They came yeah. to me and told me there's going to be a million-dollar winner tonight. You're going to have him on the air tomorrow morning. And I said to myself, this isn't exactly the network news that I signed up for 15 years ago. I didn't say it to them, but I decided it was probably time to get out. So I went looking Hmm. to get out, disastrously took an executive job as a senior VP at a home shopping channel uh, that was based in Minneapolis. Took me about 10 minutes to realize that wasn't for me, but about (laughs) two years until um, I left. And figured, what the hell, I'll open a production company. So I opened a production company and had no work. I was pitching various places, but not picking up any jobs. And I finally decided, I called Al Roker. Al was a friend of mine. 
he had worked for me on the uh, Weekend Today show when I ran it with a partner. And Al also had a production company. I called him up. I said, hey, I'm starving. You got any work? And he said, yeah, I'm doing a fair amount of stuff for the Food Network. You want to do some of that? And I said, sure. And I started picking up projects that he would subcontract to me, including at one point a documentary on the history of the diner. Um, When... I was done with that and decided that I liked the genre of food television. I started pitching the uh, the network myself to a resounding chorus of no thank you. I called and called and called and pitched and pitched and pitched and they refused, refused, mm. refused. Finally, I'm on the phone one day. It's late in the afternoon on a Thursday or Friday with an accommodating food network executive who took my calls. And finally, after I pitched some things that she turned down, she said to me, don't you have anything else about diners? And I said, oh, absolutely, Christine. Uh, I've been developing this show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And she said, well, we have a development meeting Tuesday. Get me a write-up on Monday. And I put down the phone, and I was delighted. But I had a problem because I had not been developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. I had just pulled the name out of thin air or a body part, depending upon how scatological you want the story to be. (laughs) And I spent the weekend calling people uh, because back then you actually used your telephone to talk to people. And I put together a proposal for a one-hour special. And shortly thereafter, they picked it up. Um, it, It was not pitched as a series. They just wanted a special. But what happened was... They guy had just won their Food Network Star Contest back when they still believed that they could use that contest to to generate future stars. To the best of my knowledge, guy is the only one who's been a success. But at that point, they they um, they saw the the contest as as a pipeline, and they wanted uh, him to have a primetime show. So. They had asked a couple of big deal, big name production companies to come up with proposals for a primetime show. And in the interim, they put the special on the air because it couldn't hurt. And they'd get a little more FaceTime for Guy with the viewers. Well, the special did better than I think they expected. And when the proposals came in from the big boys, they hated them. So now they had a dilemma. They had the only viable proposal for him was mine. So they picked up a short first season and then they were surprised by how well we did. And I stayed for 11 seasons. I think the show is now in season 30 something. So uh, it turned out okay. I mean, that's, I'll tell you, my dad and I have watched hours and hours and hours of that show and i i appreciate uh the show very much again we'll 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 watch the show and be like hey we're going to such and such and uh we're going to charleston or whatever where where are the restaurants there so i mean your show has had a huge impact on uh, i mean america but specifically like my life and i know producer brian you said you as you as well yeah well i watched i mean i remember back in i guess this was early 2000s right Mm -hmm. and that came out i was watching that was the like some people had just had like tbs on all the time i had food tv on that <laughs> was just on well, like period i watched all of it thank you gentlemen. and that you know i watched the next the next food the food network star whatever it was i saw the one guy mm-hmm. won you know whatever that was just it was on so i saw it 
that show, I, I mean, I wish it didn't come on at night because I was always so hungry <laughs> watching it. Um, I went to a bunch of those restaurants. I used to travel a lot, and I'd like look up, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to be in Richmond, Virginia. Have they been somewhere in Richmond I can go to? Didn't we go to a fried chicken you know, place in Richmond? I ended up in it was what I would definitely call a dive oh, okay. bar That's good. in Richmond. <laughs> That's good. Um, you guys definitely turn the lights on when you come in because that was a dark hole. <laughs> well, uh, but the food was good, you know. <laughs> that's the key. Most of the places maintain yeah. their quality. Occasionally, we get a call from somebody uh, complaining that they had gone to a restaurant we'd been to and the food wasn't good. And um, I guess subconsciously to blow their minds, I would call them and say, hi, I'm the executive producer of uh, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. I'm sorry to hear that you had a bad experience at whatever the place was. Please understand that when we went there, it met our standards. So either you got them on a bad day or things have changed. Um, but it was important to me that the places truly, the food had to really be good. It was very hard to get on the show. Um, yeah, the, the food was good here. Just it was the yeah, well, was like, hey, oh, wow. like, what did what, what did the name of the show say? <laughs> yeah, okay. right, exactly. <laughs> what what I was well, this is real. It. This is real life. All right. What I was most <laughs> pleased by, and I certainly didn't expect this, is I started early on hearing from restaurateurs who said that we saved their businesses. You know, because mm -hmm. mom and pops are always on the edge. And there were a number of places. There was a, a, a barbecue joint in Lexington, Kentucky, that um, we had on the show. And some months later, my daughter was in a horse show in Lexington. So I said, "Hey, let's let's go to the barbecue joint." And uh, it was it was like uh, I I was embarrassed. I mean, they went so nuts over me, and we couldn't keep going back because they wouldn't let us pay. But she said we were about to file bankruptcy. And wow. um, it's that sort of thing that, that made me feel real good because I have a deep affection for people who who own and run restaurants. Um, you know, by definition, people in the hospitality industry have to want to please somebody else or it isn't mm. going to work. And then the amount of work people put in and and frankly – the amount of abuse they can take because not every customer is a nice guy. I, I was glad that we were of some value in that respect. So you basically paved the road for like John Taffer with Bar Re Rescue and uh, <laughs> Gordon Ramsay with his. I, I didn't pave the road <laughs> for anyone. The, the concept of going to a few restaurants in a half hour was not new. I think I can say immodestly that we elevated it and we made it more real. We, I held the shows to the same fact-checking standards that I held the investigative unit to at 2020 when I ran that. Wow. And we told the truth. If you look at any of the app, I don't know what they do now, but in my day, everything that was made in the show, we showed every single step. So... Mm -hmm. It was it was completely honest, and um, also making making TVs fun. You get to meet people, you get to learn new things. I found out so much about American cuisine from doing that show that that I had known sure. nothing about, and um, it was a hoot. 
How did those restaurants get picked for the show? I, I heard a rumor, and I don't know. I don't know if it's true. Especially doing uh, some research on is like it. P- Restaurants could pay you no. ten thousand dollars. No, is that not no, true? No, no. come <laughs> no. on. Um, although initially, when people didn't know who we were, some restaurateurs would say, "This is some sort of advertising thing. I'm supposed to pay you to be on the show." No, we um, mm. had a full staff of researchers whose only job was to find restaurants in specific places because. Hmm. One of the the elements of visual entertainment, be it movie or TV that people don't realize, is in the final analysis, everything is determined by the budget. So <laughs> one of – and we, we would shoot four segments at a time, four restaurants in a week. But those would be spread out over different shows. Hmm. And the – it was very important to get geographical diversity. So the first place I wanted to look to go were cities that were on a border where you could do something in Kentucky and something in Ohio and (laughs) get as much diversity as possible for when you checkerboarded these pieces into your different shows. First, I would decide, let's go here. Then the staff would begin to research the restaurants in that area, starting with the usual suspects, the local newspapers, the local magazines, the state Mm -hmm. magazines, and then begin calling people, A, who wrote for those publications, or in some other way were connected with the local restaurant industry, and ask for recommendations and ask where not to go. Once it looked like we had enough consensus on some places, we would begin calling them and talking to them. And right off the bat, you're looking for a couple of things. How real is the food they make? And how good a character is this for television? I'm not looking for someone over the top. I'm not looking for someone to compete with guy in the spiky haired category. But television is voyeurism. It's all about spending mm-hmm. time with somebody you like. That, that's why, to pick a name from the past, that's why James Garner starred in so many shows. That's why Tom Selleck. That's why this, that's why this podcast doesn't do so well. <laughs> that's a different issue. Um, <laughs> but, but the point is, traditional television is, let me hang out with this person I like. Obviously, yeah. people like Guy, but I had to book guests that were likable or unique mm-hmm. or yeah. interesting. More importantly, though, the food had to be legit. I mean, I live on a tourist island that has a place famous for pancakes. I thought, well, that could be interesting. And uh, immediately when I started asking questions, it became clear to me they use a prepared mix. Well, if Mm. your specialty is pancakes and you're not making your pancake mix from scratch, you're off the show. Um, It Mm. was that sort of thing. I didn't trust restaurants that used prepared um, salad dressings or prepared sauces, if only because it's cheaper to make your own. And I assume that if you're running a good Mm. restaurant, you're smart. Um, And it Mm. was that sort of quality control that we employed in in our screening process. And 5% of the time, and the network thought I was nuts for this because I ate it, 5% 5% of the time when they walked into a restaurant on in-person inspection, 
uh, it did not meet our standards despite all of our screening. And I would tell Guy and the crew to walk out, to say, sorry, we can't do mm. this. Um, wow. As I say, that was literally 5% of the time. Wow. Do you have questions? You had that thought. I can see I, it. I do have it. Okay. So you didn't have like a, a a scout team go out and go like go order a taco at this place and see what you couldn't know, afford it. Ask questions. Everything is determined by budget. Wow. Travel hmm. is the big killer in television. We honed the screening process to near perfection, and we did it remotely. Hmm. Wow. Today, I'd, prob I'd probably modify the process to include um, a video walk-around, which we, we couldn't do back in the day. I mean, I just sold a car that way. There's this service <laughs> that they call you up, and they walk you around your car with your phone, and you, like, point at things, and then they give you a quote and come and take your car. <laughs> sold a wow. 2008 Mercedes SLK 55 um SLK 55 AMG with no, I mean, they just looked at my car over the phone. So, okay. Wow. What were you going to say, Ryan? No, I was going to say, I, I saw where uh, Triple D went to uh, one of the restaurants I love going to, and that's and, uh, uh, Pinky's West Side Grill. Mm -hmm. Where is that? So that just, uh, yeah. Where is it? It's uh, in Charlotte. It is. Uh, There's a couple of them. Oh, what's those intersections? <laughs> it's, it's like. Um, yeah, it's in Charlotte, and then they, they kind of spun off. It's in Charlotte, yeah. I don't know what okay, now, in yeah. your view, is that a place they should go? They did. But should they? Oh, oh, should they? Oh, okay. oh absolutely. Well, it's a staple here in Charlotte. It's a, it's a chain yeah. now. I don't know if it's a chain at the time. How many, how many restaurants have become the popular? There's, there's probably 10 of them. Uh, see I bet. But is there that 10? Would trouble Let me look. I'll look it up real quick. There's a bunch, I feel like. But there's only, okay. Maybe not. I was only aware of two. Yeah, that, well, more than two. Yeah. You get into that, you know, at what point is it not a mom and pop if mom yeah. and pop have opened, you know, have expanded a little? Yeah. I, you know, three or four locations maybe, although we would have to go to the original. Okay, you're right. There's only yeah. two. There's only two. I was thinking of something yeah. else, I think. <laughs> There's only two. I've been to both. There's you went two. to ten to two. That was I've eaten to both of them ten two? times. Okay, that's the problem. What? <laughs> <laughs> he, he eats too much pinkies. That's yeah, good. It was well, kind of the well, same wait, what's for... what's their signature dish? What do you eat there? Burgers, burger. pretty much. Yeah, they're a burger yeah. place. Um, they'll do. They make a good salad. They have, too. They have a burger <laughs> with peanut butter on it. Um, mm -hmm. Me I it. focused in the book on a burger with peanut butter on it mm -hmm. in uh, yep. in Indiana uh, near yeah, Purdue uh, University. Named after a football player. Yeah, Dwayne Purvis. It's the Dwayne it Purvis All American. <laughs> um, yeah, they have some hot dogs. What if it's in relation to Jim? <laughs> I do. The bearded chef. I do know um, uh, you went to Cabo Fish Taco, and that was uh, that was also <sighs> on the show. And that's why we went there, and my wife loves it. That's kind of one of our spots now. Oh. You know, fish tacos were probably originally Japanese. Hmm. You talk about know. authentic food. I hate that word. Um, you know, fish tacos are Mexican. <laughs> right, except it's generally believed that they were first made by Japanese fishermen who had come to Mexico and that the the frying of the fish was an emulation of um, Japanese frying technique, uh, which now escapes me, of course. But um, 
Oh, that's going to drive me nuts. Uh, tempura, thank you. Um, so, yeah, it's <laughs> to purists, that Mexican dish is Japanese. <laughs> What's one of your best memories, David, of, of doing the show, of Triple D? Uh, best memories of doing the show. Well, remember, I, I was only on the road for season one. And between traveling and putting the show together, and we only had three months from green light to, to air to, to start. Oh, wow. uh, I would say that my best memories of doing the show were actually doing the pilot when hmm. I learned that this, I didn't know who uh, guy was uh, at first. I said to them, do you want to talk about a host? They said, no, no, we got the guy we want you to use. And they named him and said that he had won the, star contest which i did not know there was such a thing and i went to the website and i saw this picture of this man child wearing shorts and flip-flops who looked like his head lost a bet with a blender and i and i literally said to myself i'm screwed it wasn't now we started talking on the phone and it was clear he was um not going to be a total disaster, but it wasn't until we got on site and started shooting the pilot that I had this revelation that while he was green as hell. There was a lot uh, he had to learn, but it was quickly apparent that he was the most naturally talented TV performer I'd ever worked with. And mm. I've, I've worked with some very big names. And mm. I think it was probably shooting at the Bayway Diner where um, – it really punched me in the face and said, this could work. Because I had been pitching shows for 9,000 years, and the possibility of something working was beyond consideration. Although, um, this was in New Jersey, and Guy, God love him, wasn't terribly familiar with how things are here. And he's behind the counter making jokes about the mob and being rubbed out. And I finally had to take him outside and said, Guy... In here, that ain't a joke. <laughs> mm. I mean, there was a guy at the counter packing. Okay, oh, yeah. so we went back <laughs> in and did away with the mob humor. But uh, I guess, I guess, getting it off the ground and and then the overwhelming throughout the time I was with the show, it's rare in the in the TV business that you actually get your vision on the air. Mm. And I actually got on the air with a show the way I wanted to do it. And that I am forever grateful to have had that opportunity because that's real rare in television. Mm. Whose idea was the car? What about the car? Well, the car, like the classic car. Okay. Like, when we went iconic, when, right? when we shot the <laughs> pilot, I begged, borrowed, stole, or rented a different classic car in each city. Because um, it just felt like it should have classic cars. Mm. When they picked us up, it was clear that I needed one car. To That, that the, the finding a different car in each town was going to be yeah. a pain in the butt. And frankly, I needed one car for the... Um, the illusion that guy was somehow driving across America. We never said that, mm -hmm. 
Right. So like, you know, you wanted a sea guy in the car. So I called the woman from whom we had rented that particular Camaro uh, for our Boston shoot on the pilot. Sight unseen paid far too money, uh, too much money for it. Uh, got it to Minnesota, uh, took a look at it, realized it was in no way number matched. <laughs> on our first shoot in Las Vegas, the top quit on us halfway open as we're losing light. And I'm oh, paying no. some guy from down the street to literally remove the entire canopy so I can shoot the, uh, um, the, the well, stand up, but he's sitting down and driving. Yeah. Uh, and when I stopped doing the show, I sold the car. And the production company that does it now, I, I guess, I see, someone told me they bought a 68. This was a 67 which perfectly aped my wife's car when she was in high school or college. Um, it's funny, though, because at one point, we used to keep the car, the trailer that carried it, on... We had a hobby farm in Minnesota. We had horses. And we would keep the car there between trips. And one day, out of the boy, I said, hey, you, you, let's take the car out. I, I haven't driven in it. You want to drive the car? She said, sure. So we take the car out, and we're zipping around with the top down. And I say to her, how fast do you think we're going? She says, I don't know, 70, 80? It was 50. I mean, there is no <laughs> suspension in, in a 1960s muscle car. None whatsoever. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they're good for straight lines. Oh, yeah, it. they're fine for straight lines. So is my father's. 440-inch Hemi Chrysler. Um, it could go real fast, but you could turn the wheel for about a month till anything moved. You know? <laughs> yep. Uh, David, what? where are we going now? Where's Page Productions working on, and what are you guys doing now? I'm not doing any TV. I, um, um, I, I kind of really wanted to change. So I am doing uh, – I'm writing. I, this okay. is my my next new career. Um, I've I've had many o over the years. Uh, when I was you know running the investigative unit for twenty twenty, I, I didn't foresee doing a lot of food coverage. Um, <laughs> so I've cycled through careers uh, uh, one after another. The writing thing is incredibly it's um it's a lot of plus. Look, if you're a journalist, you need two things to be a journalist. Um, curiosity and intelligence. I at least have the curiosity part. And the yeah. opportunity to just dig into stuff you didn't know about. You know when the first breakfast sandwich recipe was published? I came across yeah. it today in doing some research for the next book. <laughs> 1897. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's that sort huh. of thing. And... um. So yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm just basically spending the day by myself in my office, looking up stuff or writing stuff down. It's um, it's nice. I got my dogs with me. I got, that leads to a second floor uh, porch. It's uh, it's a lovely oh, setup. Nice. Wow. Uh, I, I would again encourage all of our listeners to to buy that book, uh, Food Americana. It is a fantastic read. Again, don't do it when you're hungry because it's it's not good for that. Um, but it's, it's fantastic. It really is. I'm really looking forward to the next book. Any idea when that's going to come out? Oh, give me another couple of years. 
I've been. <laughs> I gotta wait a couple of years. This is worse than Game of Thrones. Yeah, well. <laughs> by the way, I, I, I deeply appreciate those kind words. So thank you. Um, no, I yeah. learned my lesson. I'm thinking two years for the okay. next one. Uh, I, I know of a guy that wrote a book as well, and it was like a, on the New York Times bestseller list. And he was saying like it was the it was the most stressful time in his life of trying to get this thing done you know, rewrites and everything else. And it was, it was difficult. So I understand and appreciate, even though I've never done it, uh, how difficult that must be. So, um, understand that one question for you. Um, well, I've had several, but who's the most famous person in your phone right now? If you were just to pick somebody, George Stephanopoulos. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. George blurbed the book for me. Yeah. No, George is probably, I mean, I got a lot of phone numbers, but like um, I have Mel Brooks' phone number, but it's not his personal phone. You know, he's gotcha. not going to answer. But no, George, I, I can honestly cool. say that, that George and I remain friendly um, f- uh, many years after we first met at ABC. I uh, copy edited some of his initial scripts after he came over from the White House. He's a great guy. He's a truly wow. great guy. Like you mentioned like network news. Like what do you think about network news now? This is kind of off the tangent of my script, but. Okay. Let me be real clear. I have a lot of complaints about network news. Hmm. None of them relate to the bogus BS uh, of fake news. No one at the networks is trying. Well, let's leave Fox out of it, but no one at the three <laughs> or four major news operations is intentionally attempting to not tell the truth. Mm-hmm. I am troubled by the fact that, look, when I, when I did it, it was the, the tail end of the glory days of Big J journalism. I walked through the Berlin mm-hmm. Wall the night it opened. We really cared about stuff. Over yeah. time, the networks, their newscasts have become far... Um, far less serious in that there's a lot of stuff internationally that simply isn't covered. The mm. respect that used to be given to repertorial experience has gone away in favor of young hip looking correspondents with very little experience, but an ability to walk on camera, which is considered a nifty thing. And there's far too much influence either of consultants or of the kind of mantra that they spill. For example, everything on every network newscast is breaking news, even though they first read it at 10 that morning on the AP wire. Everything on several of the newscasts begins with tonight. Well, no, it's not happening tonight. Business hours are over. The people you say are hard at work investigating this are not. It's that kind of garbage. And it's also the increase in putting non-national stories on as if they matter. For example, a story on just the other day about a couple who, I don't remember, they killed their kid or they didn't get something like that. Well, unless that is being used as reflective of a national trend, Mm. it's still, as sad as it may be, it's still just a local story. And it's getting on the network news because of its shock value. Additionally, Mm. um, thanks 
to a great extent because of the invention of the cell phone and the camera in the cell phone, there's so much more visual material of no editorial worth that gets on the air. A small plane crashed into a house in Plano, Texas. No one was hurt. But look at these pictures. That's a waste (laughs) of news time. Um, Also, there's far less traveling of correspondence to places where something is happening. Listen closely to the network news and listen to the tag outs of stories. Joe Blow, NBC News, Cleveland versus Joe Blow, NBC News. There's an Mm -hmm. awful lot of Joe Blow, NBC News simply tracking pictures that were sent in from someplace else. Certainly the staffing levels internationally are way down. The number of bureaus is way down. And look, that goes back to a definition of what is the job of a network newscast. Is it to inform and be a prestige product or is it to make money and win the ratings? And obviously the ratings and the money play a massive role in the decisions being made. So uh, also, there's there's no quality control about grammar. I mean, we had a guy at NBC named um, Gil Milstein, who in a varied career had been a New York Times writer. Uh, he um, was a jazz critic and discovered a couple of fame. Anyway, his job on NBC Nightly News was the grammarian. And of the various levels of people who had to approve your script before you could put it on TV... Gil had an override over everyone, including Brokaw and including the executive producer. Oh, wow. And you don't hear that kind of attention to detail anymore. I mean, just the mismatch in tense or the use of a singular verb for a plural construction or the opening of um, a segment with a dependent clause that doesn't actually relate to what follows it. I I throw shoes at the screen, but let me make it clear. None of this is about bias. None of this is about fake news. It's about me being a really cranky old codger who insists it was better back in my day. (laughs) Well, it was better back in the day. And there's no doubt about that. That's a hundred percent true. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that say it's bad. Gil kicked, in fact, it wasn't even Gil. This was before Gil. The, um, I, was, I sent a script to New York for what at the time was called a special segment. It was like a three or four minute piece. And it was something we were doing about street prostitution in Germany. And I allowed the correspondent to write the line that, that she was, quote, stealing and dealing to feed her habit. The senior Mm. producer in charge of those segments jammed that so far down my throat and removed it from the other end of my anatomy with the simple (laughs) phrase, we don't write like that at the network. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Those were the days. (laughs) Those were the days. Well, speaking of fake news. Uh, I'm going to ask you our question for season three, okay. or five. Sorry, what is more likely to exist? I'm not. I'm not saying that you do uh, subscribe <laughs> to any one of these, but which one is more likely to exist? Bigfoot or aliens? Aliens. Okay. Hmm. All right. Great. Yeah. Uh, Bigfoot's a guy in a rental suit. <laughs> <laughs> 
David, thank you so much. Where can people get your book at? Uh, you can get the book at uh, Amazon.com, Target.com, Walmart.com, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, pretty much any place that sells books. I mean, I've, I've been on the internet, and I'm delighted by the number of foreign booksellers who, who are carrying the book. Awesome. And if you want to follow the universe that surrounds it, I have a Facebook page uh, for Food Americana and an Instagram page for Food Americana. Oh, okay. I did not know that. Yes, they are there. David, thank you again so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Wow. I could I could literally talk to him for days. I mean, that... Yeah. Wow. On, and, and it really is. I'm not BSing. That's a great book. If you like food and you want to know like the uh, history of it... That's, that, yeah, it's like a, he was writing that for me. I haven't read it yet, but the premise... Yeah, is uh, this is yeah. right up your alley. So, <laughs> Magic Man, I'll get a copy of that, send it to you, and uh, so you'll have that. Producer Brian, I'll pay you back for what you're going to buy. That's whatever. Um, Fifteen so, bucks, right? <laughs> I appreciate. I appreciate him coming on. What an awesome yes. story! Like, how yes. often do you get to see your your dream lived out, especially on network television? Like, he changed the face of of Food Network and and that show. I mean, that's yeah. He, you know, he mentioned, you know, you have these artisans who have met, who took a thing mm. and they're known for this thing. He crafted a show, a, a format yeah. that so many others have tried to copy and some have maybe succeeded. Yeah, but not as good. Different spins on it, but that, I think him and the show that Anthony Bourdain did, mm -hmm. uh, the No Reservations, were like two of the best yeah. travel food shows I've ever watched. And he's like the, the epitome of like, if you go to a seat, like you said, and, and I do the same thing even now is like, where has di diner drivers and dives gone? Oh, I want to go to that restaurant because they were there. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's changed the game. He really has. Absolutely. So we appreciate him coming on the show. It's not a lot of, yes. it's not BS. I mean, we really, no. we really appreciate him coming on. Uh, next week, producer Brian, you are on vacation. I am on vacation. You're out, so Magic Man. Real vacation. You, me, yes. and we'll try to find a three, and we'll go from there. Again, we appreciate you guys tuning into the Southern Fried Philosophy Podcast. Again, if you want any of his information, it'll be in our show notes, and so we will have that. We'll be back again next week. So thank you again for tuning in. This is the Southern Fried Philosophy Podcast, and as always, keep looking up. Mm -hmm.